Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ market site in New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I am Brian, and once again for Melissa, tonight's trader lineup, a trifecta of talent. Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and BK, Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, call it the Paul Revere trade because a correction is coming. That is the big warning tonight from Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson. He'll lay out his timeline and how he is positioning for a pullback. Plus, hold them or fold them. Just a day after we talked about them, casino stocks crashed on new COVID concerns out of China. It was this trade just too much of a gamble for your money. And later on, a very serious topic for kids, teens, and parents. A shocking new report on how Facebook knows how much damage Instagram may be doing to your kids. The question is, will they or anyone do anything about it? All right, that is a very important story that you will have to hear. We will get to that in just a bit. But right now, let's go to tonight's main event, and that is Apple announcing a whole new fleet of products today. You got an iPhone 13, a mini phone, a new Apple Watch, and more. But investors may be wanting more. The stock's sliding into the close, down just about 1%. Let's get more on what Apple rolled out today and reaction. Josh Lipton with that. Josh, good evening. So, Brian, let's start with Apple's most important product, the iPhone. Apple CEO Tim Cook taking the virtual stage and saying these are the best iPhones Apple has ever created. And here they are, the iPhone 13, the iPhone 13 mini, the iPhone 13 Pro, and the iPhone 13 Pro Max, all 5G enabled, faster chips, brighter displays, bigger batteries, and upgraded camera systems. As for prices, they do remain the same as last year. We would also expect, of course, the carriers to be typically aggressive when it comes to pricing as well. The new iPhones pre-orders on September 17th. They'll be available on September 24th. Also highlight today, a new iPad that comes with a faster processor, better camera, costing $329, and a new iPad mini that costs $499, both available next week. And rounding out the show today, the new watch, Series 7, 20% more screen area, charges faster, more crack resistant, $390. Apple saying it is available later this fall, but did not offer a hard date. As for the stock action, heading into this event, remember, Apple on a roll over the past three months, up 15% besting the market, but did finish lower. As you point out in today's trade, it is lower for September, potentially snapping a three-month win streak, now up 14% for the year. Brian, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton on that. Josh, thank you very much. All right, guys, let's trade this. And Guy Adami, we will begin with you. I mean, this kind of follows historical patterns. CNBC Pro had something on online today. Great data showing that really the stock doesn't move on these big product announcements. Was there anything that you heard or saw that says, oh, now you got to own it or own more of it. I love I love the line. I, I, this Brian Kelly will tell you, I think it's going to catch on at some point. Did I hear anything? <laughs> N- not particularly. But listen, I will say and I've said it a 100 times. I'm not their target audience. So I think it was, you know, I'm sure a lot of people got amped up about it. That's great. I don't think it was particularly stock moving. And we talked about that last night. What I will say is, and we're not trying to bury the lead here. I still think that ruling last week 
in terms of the App Store. I think that's pretty big news here. And the stock obviously is told off about 6%. If you are flying in from Mars and, you know, you, this is the first time you ever heard of Apple and you're trying to find out where to get in, I think there's some logical places here. You go back to January, the stock topped out around 143 made a pretty significant decline, about a 20% decline over a month. So past resistance becomes support. So if you're not in the name, I think that 143 level, I happen to think we're going to get there, and I happen to think that's where you get in the name. Tim, would you agree with that? Well, if you look at the stock, first of all, you know, closing below the 50 today, this stock hasn't really closed to the downside through the 50 since May. Uh, it's had a lot of good news. Agree with the analog around new releases. I, I think that, you know, the story around the 13 release is really the strength of, of the 12 refresh and the fact that all the data we've been getting from the major operators and the strength that we've seen in the slow, uh, well, it, even if it's moderation into, into the upgrade cycle, is is a story of an elongated refresh cycle. And I, I think, look, the story for Apple for the last two years has been about uh, the non-hardware business, the services and the App Store and, and even the controversy around the App Store, but the multiple moving higher. Uh, the story for the next 12 months is, is around the hardware. Um, and I actually think that you're going to see some of the Apple services, uh, you know, maybe come in lighter, uh, especially around Apple Care and some of these stories. But it's a story of higher ASPs. Uh, it's a story certainly of a higher multiple for the stock uh, and, and a divergence really from the S&P. In other words, uh, Apple had a market multiple really kind of going uh, into 2021 and now is, you know, 27, 28 times versus the market 22. I think it holds that. It should hold that. And I think this story around the Apple 13 release, eh, we, we didn't expect much. I think it's more about this elongated cycle. And I think for Apple, it is a hardware company right now. And thank goodness it is. You know, BK, here's the thing about Apple. And Apple's made, no doubt, a lot of the fast money. And CNBC viewers ate a lot of money in the last few years. If you bought it 10 or 15 mm -hmm. years ago, you're probably sitting on your solid gold yacht with a helicopter on the back. And that's great. But this year, it has not been that great. In fact, there's 13 better stocks in the Dow. It's right in the middle of the pack of the NASDAQ 100. I mean, I'm, nobody's knocking Apple. It's been a credible moneymaker for the last number of years. But right yeah. now, it hasn't really done that much. I wonder if there's just a better place for our viewers' money. I mean, there probably is for all the reasons that, that Dan and Tim mentioned. I mean, if you think about what moves stock prices, it's new information. So do we get any new information today? No. We knew they were going to upgrade a phone. They do it all the time. Was there anything special about the phones? Yeah, a couple bells and whistle, whistles. But the stock market told you today, the price of Apple stock told you that that is not as the driver of the price. It is about the, uh, about the ruling last week that Guy mentioned. That is the mover of the price. So that's what you have to watch out. Now, if you want to bring it in back a little bit and look at kind of the macro picture, you know, are, we, are consumers in a place to buy another $1,000 phone? And was this upgrade that much of an increase, an incremental increase, that people are going to open up their wallet and buy it. Now, guys like you, Sully, I don't know what kind of yacht you have, but it sounds like it's gold-plated. They may want to do that, but the general public who don't have your resources may not want to buy that. It's made of gold, and it floats in my bathtub just fine. Everything. <laughs> I give it to my son at night. All right. Uh, guy, but you get my point. Is it's, We're just talking about the stock. We're not, not, no one's slamming Apple. I don't want the Apple heads coming after us. It's just that you wonder, has the long-term <laughs> money been Too made? Too late, by the way. <laughs> by the way, yeah. you're right. Is, no, is this the Apple heads? Is this kind of a 
utility type stock. You buy it maybe like that miniature yacht for your children to give to their children and their grandchildren. But if you're looking to print money over the next 12 months, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and we're tasked with trying to focus on what's going to happen over the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, next couple of months. Correct. I mean, Gene will come on and talk about the long-term hold for this, and he's spot on. By the way, Jim Cramer says it all the time, and Tim Seymour said it. It's not a stock you want to trade. It's one you want to own, and quite frankly, every couple of months, it seems to be making a new all-time high. What I will point out, and what Dan, who Brian mentioned earlier, who is not with us tonight, but should be, but he's not feeling well. <laughs> he said a couple times, you know, over the last three and a half, four years, you've seen 20 to 35 percent peak to trough declines in the name. You saw it in January, as I mentioned. So it's not unreasonable to think the stock could sell off. Now, we're already down six percent from the all-time high we made just a couple weeks ago. I think you have another four or five percent, and that's why I mentioned the level I did earlier. Yeah, 143 is the level that you mentioned, the level we're watching. And by the way, six bucks below where the stock is now. All right, let's continue this conversation and bring in a new voice and friend to Fast Money, Loop Ventures founder, Gene Munster. All right, Gene. Hi, Brian. You, you know, hey, how you doing? Listen, BK said there was nothing new. I sort of disagree. The terab- one terabyte phone, whatever that means, sounds like a lot of storage. That was kind of new enough. $7.99 intro price tag. Of course, you got rebates and stuff. What was the one or two big takeaways that you heard that kind of you know, made you sit up and listen? A little more today. From a feature and spec standpoint, there really wasn't much. There's a, uh, a mind-blowing camera on the Pro, but I think that uh, that uh, plays into this, uh, this this narrative, I guess, that this is just a, yet another routine upgrade. That There is nothing that, that shocked me out of the chair, to answer your question, but there is something important that uh, is uh, uh, reassuring for long-term investors is what they're doing here is continuing to hold serve with uh, arguably the world's greatest products. And I think that that comes to fruition when you look at their, their the satisfaction level that their customers have and how they expand into multiple other multiple products. Uh, Guy said, if you're from Mars and you come down, you look at Apple and wonder, is this a great stock? I'm paraphrasing Guy. I apologize if, I, if, I'm, if I'm not doing it quite right. But I would add that that Martian would probably have to go buy an iPhone and an iPad and yeah. a MacBook to, to figure out how to get around. And what I'm what I'm uh, getting to is that what they did today is continue to stay on the edge of products that we need more. And it's not just about the pandemic. It's just about a shift in terms of how people think about learning, working, playing. Apple's products just work seamlessly. And we think that they basically have this virtuous cycle where they continue to add features, which are largely yeah. at the same price. They did, as Tim mentioned, they did increase the price of the iPad mini by $100, but largely they maintain their prices, increase the functionality. That's a benefit to a consumer. That's part of the virtuous benefit here. And then there's a benefit to Apple. The more devices that they get out there, the more opportunities they have to sell other devices and services to them. That, to me, is uh, something that resonates. It's the foundation of companies that can continue to march higher. This company will not print money for an investor, but this is a company that I think should be in everyone's portfolio and just rest well knowing that they've got uh, a line on where things are going over the next decade. But I I do need to correct Guy Adami there for a second, because if the Martians came down, clearly their technology is already superior to ours. and We'll be working in their um, underground sugar caves before too long. (laughs) They will give us a new phone. You see that, Guy Adami? How about the long term, though, Gene? Here's what Dan Ives of uh, Wedbush said. The iPhone super cycle continues. Apple remains, and I apologize for reading, 
Apple remains in the midst of its strongest overall product cycle in roughly a decade. I mean, Dan's been a long-term bull on Apple, but that's a strong statement. Would you agree? I uh, I do my own work here, but I think our our work is has a similar outcome. <laughs> I'll just put a finer point on it is over the next year, we think there are about 400 million people with iPhones that are three years old and older. Now, that is down from what we estimated uh, last year, which was 420 million phones, but still a base of 400 million phones when the street's looking for 260 million next year. It's a nice, uh, a nice starting point. It's a nice head start to get to the numbers. Uh, I do think that 5G is going to be a multi-year upgrade. We track the speeds of 5G in the U.S. right now. It's just slightly better than LTE. It's about 60 megabytes down. The carriers, of course, are proclaiming this is going to be a gigabyte. So we're talking almost 15x faster eventually. And I think over time, uh, it's just going to take time for 5G to get going. And eventually, you're going to hear about it. You're going to see it on your friend's phone. You're going to want to upgrade, and Apple's going to benefit from that. There you go. Gene Munster with a long-term optimistic view. Says it won't print money, but it is a company that you have to watch because they innovate, innovate, innovate. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Thank you very much, Gene. As always, uh, you're very welcome. I mean, Tim is Apple. To its point, I'll show him a little love. A a must-own, a widows and orphans stock. Well, it's it's a must own to me for for multiple reasons. And the one we haven't also talked about is is maybe least important, but maybe the one that allows you to sleep the most at night. I mean, this is a company that's bought back four hundred billion dollars of stock that has, uh, you know, routinely 80 billion dollars of cash in the balance sheet that can deliver a big dividend that that has ways they can increase EPS. Um, It's it's a vault. Uh, in terms of, of the, the cash flow machine that it, that it is. Also, ha- how about the fact that LG is no longer making smartphones? How about the fact that Apple is... Cr- hmm. I guess we're going to go to BK. BK, we're going we're to give you the final call on that because I've successfully eliminated Dan, Guy, and Tim so far. It's just you. It's the two <laughs> Brian show right now. BK, That's give right. us a quick... Give us a quick... Which is nothing wrong with that, by the way. Let's get a quick comment on Apple from you. Again, a must-own, exactly. long-term? Another, another term, might, this is Airbnb right now, just so oh, you know. Oh, nice. Smart, right? Smart. Since I got the time, I'm going to take up the airtime. Anyway, uh, when we're talking about Apple, I, I actually I still think this comes back to a consumer story. It's not about innovation. This was not innovative at all, what they did. They continue to churn out a product, and if you believe that consumers are going to upgrade, then yeah, buy the stock. But that's all this is. There's nothing special about it. If you see the consumer start to get weak, then that's going to hit the stock. They're not going to reach into their wallet and buy a $1,000 phone. Or if 5G uh, rollout is delayed or not as great as everybody thinks, then, then I wouldn't buy it. But it scares me when everybody is of consensus that over the next decade, this thing is going to be the, way, the thing to own. If I had to, I would not be long this over the next decade if I had a 10-year horizon. Okay, there you go. And by the way, from CNBC Pro, I'll just say six months after the last two iPhone announcements, 2018, Apple's down 15%. 2020 was down 18%. 19, it was up 34. So to the last three years, it has not been up six months after these big announcements. See what happens. Call me in six months. All right, coming up, a big, bold crypto call. Kathy Wood has a new price target in sight for Bitcoin that just might blow your mind. And later on, is the come down coming? Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson is here with why we may finally see a real pullback in the markets. We've got all that and more with Fast Money Returns. We're back right after this.
Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. All right, welcome back. Let's get now to D.C. because crypto front and center on Capitol Hill. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler testifying before the Senate Banking Committee. He is calling for a more aggressive approach in policing cryptocurrency trading, arguing the majority of digital assets traded over crypto exchanges should be registered with the SEC. We're going to hear much more about that in an exclusive interview with Gary Gensler tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern on Squawk on the Street. Don't miss it. As well as Gensler's testimony But that failed to spook crypto investors today. In fact, Bitcoin rallied 4%. And one of the biggest voices in the trade says this breakout is just getting started. We believe that the the price will be tenfold of where it is today. So instead of 45,000, over 500,000. Our uh, confidence in Ether has gone up dramatically as we've seen the beginning of this trans, uh, transition from proof right. of work to proof of stake. We'd still probably do 60% uh, Bitcoin, 40% Ether. Kathy Wood also saying Bitcoin to $500,000. BK, crypto bull. Mm-hmm. 500K, really? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's an outrageous call at all. So let me put some numbers around that. I've been talking about $250,000 for years now. But again, let me put numbers around that. If you look at the U.S. economy, it's about a $20 trillion economy. Currencies need to grow to the to a certain size to, to uh, service the underlying economy. If you think that Bitcoin is going to be the currency of the Internet of Things, that opportunity is, oper- is about a $20 trillion opportunity. So how big does Bitcoin need to be to service that? Well, just look back at the U.S. economy. The Federal Reserve, the monetary base, they stopped reporting it when they started printing money, which is weird, but it's estimated to be about $7 trillion at this point in time. So if I need $7 trillion U.S. trillion to run a $20 trillion U.S. economy, then if Bitcoin is going to run the Internet of Things economy, it needs to be $7 trillion in market cap, which would put Bitcoin somewhere around the half a million dollars, $500,000 mark. So I don't think it's actually that outrageous to have that price target. Guy Adami, do you you think that's outrageous? Uh, Bitcoin bulls are happy. 
That's tenfold, more than tenfold, up from where we are right now. Yeah. Really? I didn't, I didn't know there was going to be math here, so forgive me. But listen, <laughs> BK literally wrote the book. So when he makes, and listen, he obviously has done the math, so he understands it. What I'll say is, and this is something I can wrap my head around, it's reasonable to believe that gold, which is a $10 trillion-ish market cap, that Bitcoin or crypto, I should say, uh, can't trade to at least there. So my math would be a little bit different. It would get you obviously a lower price, but I think we're all looking at the same types of things. So I'm more in, you know, what's the market cap of gold, potential replacement of gold, Bitcoin, crypto, north of $10 trillion. So that's how I would look at this, Brian. Yeah, Tim, let's talk about Kathy Wood also making bullish comments, by the way, on Ether and Ethereum. I know that's something that you hold as well. If you've got if you've got Bitcoin and you're making these bold calls, you see that Ether could be along for maybe a similar ride. Well, again, the comment on proof of work to stake and, and really where we've had the conversation on Ethereum is that the platform is, is starting to find its home where people are starting to do uh, that math. The guy's struggling with calculations in 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 ethereum increments so as they're starting to evaluate asset prices especially in the nft land this is something that i i think you're, you're really seeing some of the commercialization of all this and then and just back to the asset class and, and back to allocations and back to where both guy and bk were in terms of market cap to the overall market i mean think about where assets are overall and as long as the fed is printing money as they are uh, and that the market cap right now of the stock market is in excess of every other bubble in terms of market cap to gdp why shouldn't we be seeing digital currencies and the future of, of uh, really what is blockchain technology and valuing assets also, um, if, if anything, conservatively, um, yeah. should be trading near the top of its current range relative to where it fits in that spectrum? And I don't think we know, um, but I think we're starting to see this take off. Very quickly, BK, a lot of attention around Solana recently. The only Solana I know is a beach just north of San Diego. Uh, are you a believer in some of the other smaller cryptos or should we just stick Bitcoin, Ether? Uh, no, there's tons of opportunity out there. I mean, Solana is definitely a favorite. That's one of my bigger positions. Uh, I think interoperability and Web3. So you talk about Cosmos Atoms, another big position for me. Polkadot is another big position. There is so much opportunity in this space uh, beyond Bitcoin and Ether. That's not to say I don't like them, but there are real uh, protocols out there doing yeah. real things. And I would say those three are probably my top picks right now. All right, good stuff, everybody there. And we are just getting going here on Fast Money on a Tuesday night. Here's what's coming up next. Don't look now, but a correction could be coming. That's the big warning from Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. And he's got some tips on where to seek safety. Plus, a warning to the scrollers. Facebook under fire, as reports show Instagram may not be so friendly. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Well, as always, the market giveth and the market taketh away. Index is falling today and giving back all they gained on Monday. The Dow dropped nearly 300 points. 
while the S&P fell to its lowest level in more than three weeks. That means the Dow and S&P have now dropped six of the past seven sessions. And your next guest says this could just be the start of a correction coming. Joining us now is Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist and chief investment officer at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Mike's good to have you on. I've got a chart here uh, from Tom Lee of Fundstrat last night. It's a technical chart. It shows the 50-day moving average. I know you're not a technician per se, but it shows that every time that we drop down a little bit, we hit that 50-day moving average, and the S&P just continues to move higher. Only one time has it broke below that in the past year. Obviously, it did 18 months ago. But it's been a very strong chart. What are you seeing now, fundamentally, technically, fund flows, or whatever, that makes you think we may finally get a real correction? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, Look, I think, uh, I mean, Tom has a good point. I mean, that's what's kept people involved here. I mean, the S&P 500 has just been tremendous. Uh, It's it's been the place to be. And and look, that's been really part of our call this year, which is that in March, you know, the mid-cycle transition, we, we said quality would outperform. That was when we got away from the kind of cyclical trade and the small caps and the low quality areas. And, and there's no better index in the world than the S&P 500. So it's been a beneficiary of that. Um, it doesn't change, however, our year-end price target, meaning eventually the mid-cycle transition will lead to a correction in the index itself. So there's really nothing has changed. Tom is right, but I'm right too, because the mid-cycle transition always ends with a correction in the index. So We'll see when it happens. Maybe it's this week. Maybe it's a month from now. I don't think we'll get done with this year, however, with that 50-day moving average holding up throughout the year because that's the pattern we typically see when you're in this part of the recovery phase. Yeah, and fund flows just continue to show. We had some Bank of America fund flow data out today. Obviously, I know a competitor to yours, but we look at the data as well, and it shows that investors are buying in. They're buying index funds. They're buying ETFs. They're buying single stocks. Money just seems to be coming out of the wazoo. Uh, stocks are going to go down when people lose interest. Do you see any, anything that makes you think that money itself is slowing down? Well, we do. At the, at the top of the, of the food chain is the Federal Reserve. And, you know, obviously their balance sheet is still growing, but the rate of change on that balance sheet has been slowing since March. That was part of our peak rate of change call which coincides with the mid-cycle transition. And by the way, it's not just the Fed. So if you look at global M2 growth, it's decelerated from about 21% year-over-year rate of change to about 11. And we think it'll be moving towards zero by the end of the year if the Fed gets on with its tapering program. So you know that will trickle down, and then the liquidity picture will deteriorate. Now, look, at the end of the day, I mean, calling the S&P 500 is you know, interesting in and of itself. But at the end of the day, you know, fund managers and investors are looking for things to do. So the, the name of the game is to find the right places to be. And in that regard, you know, the mid-cycle transitions played out really well, as I mentioned before, and, and avoiding certain things like early cycle recovery stocks and some of the you know, uh, low-quality areas, small caps since March, has been very helpful uh, to your cause in doing that. And finding places to go now is going to be the challenge. Mike, rates have been, 10-year yields have been noisy to say the least, but we still find ourselves here at one and a quarter percent. Understanding that the market probably wants that noisiness to continue in this range, in your opinion, what would be best for the stock market? Uh, 10-year yields below one percent or above one and three-quarter percent? I mean, I'm absolutely in the camp that if, you know, yields go and break new lows, then something's going wrong with the recovery. Uh, and, and quite frankly, that's one of our outcomes that we're getting a little bit concerned about because the rate of change on growth 
we think may be challenged going into the first quarter of next year as we hit the fiscal cliff, taxes go up, you know, some of these changes that are not so market friendly and maybe economically friendly either. So north of 175, I think ultimately is a better outcome for stocks over a 12-month view, simply because it confirms that the recovery is, is you know, ongoing and unabated. Mike, it's Tim, and, and you, you've, you've tended to be contrarian at times, and I think it's, it's been really important to have that look. And if you think about equity positioning now, uh, the divergence we're seeing between where people believe the outlook on the economy, it doesn't seem to make sense. And it's more consistent, frankly, with your call on a pullback. How do you explain that? How do you explain that cash levels are, are relatively low, that there's no protection being taken out, that people view liquidity as, as Shangri-La times, and yet they're saying the, the, the economy doesn't look so good? Well, it's the old FOMO argument. I mean, there really is no alternative when you're in a financial repression environment like we are. There, there really isn't a place to go. And look, I mean, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll kind of say what I said earlier. The S&P 500 is an extremely high-quality asset. It's almost like its own asset class. And, you know, the NASDAQ fits that bill as well. Yeah. You, know, the, you know, the money flow, the money has to go somewhere. And, I mean, if you look around the world, a lot of, you know, a lot of indices, you know, in emerging markets, China obviously had big problems, small cap indices here have struggled. And, you know, the S&P is just a beneficiary of that, passive flows and active flows for that matter, too. So I think that's the answer. I think I mean, we can stay in this sort of suspended state for now. I think the change will come, Tim, when we get more disappointing data on earnings revisions, because the economic data has been pretty bad. The surprise index has been terrible, but the earnings have continued to come through. And we think that's about to change. Revision breadth is about to turn down, probably in the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. And that's what will change people's view about the S&P, and they'll start to look for other places to go. All right, Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Mike, we appreciate the view as always. Thank you for coming on Fast Money. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, Dave. You know, Tim, and I'll go back to you because you're kind of the global emerging markets guy as well. I want to be clear, you know, Mike is sort of making the case for a drop in the U.S., but that doesn't mean he's a stock hater. He's optimistic in Europe. He's optimistic in Japan. The Japanese market, by the way, has been red hot. It's a big world out there. Your take on the macro call. Well, I, I saw and, and we listen to Mike on a lot of different ways and places. And I, I see he also even has Brazil on there. So there's there's an argument that uh, there are places that are later cycle that actually may have made some type of a fiscal adjustment so that even if the Fed uh, and the divergence between central banks may uh, still be the Fed is the more aggressive of the central banks, you could see growth. Look, we've seen uh, whatever you want to believe is the pace of the Delta variants and where it is slowed down uh, the global economy. You are seeing economies and different parts of the world open up. You are seeing earnings revision strength. And this really gets to where Mike was. I, I, you know, normalized earnings in the U.S. is probably a time to sell equities because we've been buying them on the come to the point where they get back to normalized. In other parts of the world, first of all, not only did they go into the cycle before that, uh, but there are places where we really haven't seen an earnings recovery across EM for, for probably eight to 10 years. So uh, the earnings revision cycle in India, in Brazil, uh, and even parts of, 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 of Asia that are not China, but in fact, Southeast Asia is booming. Uh, these are places where you can find growth. You have to be careful about that dollar because I do think if the dollar rallies, it's very difficult to be in those trades. Obrigado. Tim Seymour, thank you. BK, globally, do you think the global markets are a better bet than the U.S.? Do you agree with Mike's call? No, I think, I think Mike makes some really good points here. And, and it's, you know, it's somewhat unusual for a, a top Wall Street analyst to, to be you know, kind of, I don't even want to call him bearish, but to be less optimistic about it. So I applaud him for that. 
For me, I think Japan is the single best market out there. And talk about where money has to flow to. For the first time in over 30 years, the money is reversing back into Japan. That is、mm. trillions and trillions of dollars that is likely to go back into Japan as well. They're probably going to have some fiscal stimulus no matter what party、uh, prevails. So to me, that's where I want to be globally. Amazing, too, because Japan, no demographic growth, little economic growth. You've got a stagnant population, and yet the markets there continues to go up, up, up and up on the Nikkei 225. Fantastic stuff. All right, coming up. What is wrong with FedEx? Stock has been a hot mess. Down again today. Even as everybody is buying everything online. We're going to dig in. But first, an important story for all of you parents of kids and teens out there. Facebook under fire following a report that it knows how much Instagram may be harming your kids. But will anything or anyone do anything about it? A story you have to hear next. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Facebook coming under fire. As damning new details emerge that Instagram could be toxic for teens. Now, you probably knew or suspected that. But what you may not know is that secret documents unveiled by the Wall Street Journal reveal that Facebook itself may have known it years ago. Julia Borston is here now with more on this shocking story. Julia. Well, Brian, Facebook has reportedly found that Instagram can be harmful for teens, and Senators Richard Blumenthal and Marsha Blackburn just now announced a probe into what they're calling Facebook's cover up of its platform's negative impact on teens and children. Now, this started with a report in the Wall Street Journal, which cited internal studies it had obtained from Facebook. The journal reporting that Facebook studies over the past Three years found that 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. And 14% of boys in the U.S. said that Instagram made them feel worse about themselves. Now, teens are a particularly important demographic for Facebook and Instagram, with a reported 22 million teens logging into Instagram in the U.S. every day. That does compare with about 5 million teens. Logging into Facebook daily, that platform's number of young users has been shrinking for a decade, according to that report. Now, Instagram responding to this article with a blog, blog post that it titled Using Research to Improve Your Experience. In this blog post, it said, quote, We're starting to understand the types of content that some people feel may contribute to negative social comparison, and we're exploring ways to prompt them to look at different topics if they're repeatedly looking at this type of content. So, notably, guys, on the heels of this expose and Facebook's response, TikTok just posted that it is now offering new resources to support the well being of its community. So, I think these social platforms are starting to feel the heat, guys. Okay,、uh, Julia, and on that, and Instagram, once again, bl- you know, blaming the users. Oh, it's the users. They shouldn't be looking at this stuff. I mean, because, you know, 13 year old kids are so good at monitoring themselves. You know, there was a Wall Street Journal article in the, over well, the weekend, Julia. Hold on, I don't know if you saw this. About TikTok. And they, Wall Street Journal investigators posed as children and teens and created accounts. And they found that within a short period of time, they were being fed on their feed you know, sexually explicit, violent content. I mean, these were, these were accounts that were ostensibly for children 
or teens or young teens that the algorithms of TikTok were then pushing toward. They had like 974 instances of things being pushed toward thing, you know, things like OnlyFans yeah. and sexual content. I mean, it's not just I'm not so I'm not dunking on Instagram. It's it's all of them. It's yes. I mean, I, I we do have to remind our viewers, though, that Instagram and Facebook are different uh, I'm sorry, Instagram and Facebook, owned by Facebook, TikTok, totally separate company, and they have their own algorithms that feed off of different things. And I don't know if I would say that Facebook is blaming the user as much as saying that it's aware that its algorithm might be part of the problem and it has to change the algorithm to make sure that it's not just feeding people more negative things and sending them into a spiral. I think that that expose on TikTok was shocking. I did read it. It's a really fascinating read and it raises questions about sort of what these companies need to do um, in order to protect their users and in protecting their users, avoid regulatory scrutiny. And I think those two things are very closely connected, Brian. You are exactly right, Julia. And the last one is certainly the bigger part of this whole story. Julia Borston there. That story, by the way, on the Wall Street Journal website. I encourage everybody to go read it. Guy Dami, let's talk about it. You don't need to chime in on the content of the story in as much as this is, as Julia said, this is moments ago getting the attention of regulators. This might be one of the only bipartisan things that anybody in Congress can agree on, which is there must be or it seems like there is a definite path toward big changes for regulation coming for some of these Internet and social media companies. Agree or disagree? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, listen, it's a fascinating conversation. You know, the only thing the only difference, in my opinion, between Facebook today and tobacco, you know, 10, 15 years ago is that obviously the lobbyists in tobacco industry are pretty strong. Facebook, I'm sure, has their own lobbyists as well. I've said this a hundred times on the show. You probably get tired of hearing me say it. I find everything about Facebook to be reprehensible, everything except the stock, which is what we're tasked to talk about. But one thing I have mentioned for many years now is the existential risk, in my opinion, has been and will continue to be if this falls under the purview of the auspices of ESG investing and people start to make a difference with their pocketbooks, that's going to be huge. That would be my only concern about Facebook, because quite frankly, everything else that's come their way, they have thwarted. You know, and that is such an important point that you're making, Guy. And not everybody has to agree with you. I'm sure many people wouldn't, Tim. But I think what Guy is saying, and I don't put words in his mouth, is think about that with ESG. There's environmental, there's social, and there's governance. Let's talk about the S. We always talk about the E. Now we're talking about millions of teens, primarily teenage girls, feeling anxiety, depression, bad about themselves. Right? We've seen teen suicides on the rise, not just in the pandemic, but in the years before that as well. Do you think this kind of thing could get caught up where they say, we're not going to own Exxon, but we're also not going to own Facebook? Of course. Of course. And, and at times the, 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 the S in ESG has reared its head and obviously uh, around some of the social issues in, in, in the minority communities and some of the issues I, I think that you saw Facebook face about 18 months ago. But what I find, you know, first of all, the market... The market prices Facebook at a discount. I mean, l- look at where it trades relative to other mega cap tech cop stocks. It's, it's absolutely at a discount and it always has. And this goes back to, to their inability to really understand their core product is data, your data, uh, and back to some of the worst you know, egregious either violations of your security of your data or, in fact, how they've been using it and selling it. Um, we've had Facebook selling at a discount for a reason. What I find about this latest episode to be, you know, kind of nauseating is that Facebook using the terms we are starting to understand. 
Okay, this yep. is patronizing and this isn't accurate. What, this yep. is the whole point. And I don't I don't buy that they're starting to understand. And they're always one step behind um, kind of trailing after where they see the regulatory environment going against them. And they're often acting penitent as if they've been thinking about this long and hard. They're only thinking about it because people have brought it to the attention and they're reacting. And I, I think that's yeah. why there's a total lack of trust in Facebook, the company and the stock. It took Congress, you know, what, years or decades to react after we knew that smoking was so dangerous as well. The guy's point, we'll see what happens here, but Congress is poking around. Guys, an important conversation there. Thank you. All right, coming up, we'll change gears. FedEx fumbles, the shipping giant hitting the skids today. We're going to tell our traders might be playing today's pullback in FedEx. And later, no dice. The big headline out of China that investors, the casino stocks, cashing in some of their chips. Don't go anywhere. Fast money is back in two minutes. It is the question on many of its stockholders' minds. What's wrong with FedEx? Shares down again today. Now on track for the third straight week in the red. Company does report earnings next week. BK, not just today or this week. I mean, the action's been terrible for a while on FedEx. What's wrong? Yeah. Yeah, for quite a while. I mean, so first of all, FedEx did have some issues years back. But you think about what happened during the pandemic is that they were at the epicenter. Right? Everybody had to ship everything. Everybody started to order online. And FedEx had that. But what happened with FedEx is they got caught on two things. One, they changed their policies to say, hey, we're not necessarily guaranteeing uh, tomorrow delivery anymore. And UPS did the same thing, uh, as well as you have supply chain issues. So now if I'm a consumer and I'm saying, why would I pay a premium for FedEx when they're not going to guarantee that I, that I get it there and things take weeks anyway? So to me, that is kind of the underlying macro theme that is going on with FedEx it's traded down to 255 here. The one thing I would say, just based on how stocks trade, a lot of this is priced into the stock. Somewhere between 235 and 250, it would not mm. surprise me to see this thing bounce. But I personally would then use any bounce in FedEx as an exit plan. Wow, look at that guy, Dami. I mean, this was supposed to be one of these, quote, no-brainers, right? We're all ordering everything online, <laughs> delivery trucks everywhere. Just you don't even have to think about it. Whoops. For me, it was a no-brainer. You know, we talked. We were talking about it last fall, and I think I power pitched it in the spring when it was trading 295 or so, and it's been basically straight down ever since. BK's levels are exactly right, by the way. That 235 level is where we bottomed out around, I think, in February. And then you just look in terms of valuation. I mean, it trades half the market multiple, but everything BK has spot, said is spot on. Supply chain concerns are obviously affecting this name. At this point, I think you're smart just to wait and see what they say on the 21st when they report earnings. You go back last quarter, a lot of analysts were tripping over themselves to raise price targets anywhere from you know 275 on the low end. I think the 370 is the high that I saw. And quite frankly, that high end number made sense to me in terms of valuation. But the market is telling a much different story right yeah, now. They were tripping over themselves. Now it just appears they were just just tripping. All right. Coming up. A high-stakes sell-off. Casino stocks getting crushed today, but one of our traders says now could be the perfect time to buy in because you want to buy low, right? Tim will explain when we return. COVID crushing the casinos again today. New concerns from Macau hitting all the stocks hard. Chinese health officials rolling out new travel restrictions following a big uptick in COVID-19 infections. China also planning a 45-day public review of the gaming industry. 
including a look at the number of casino licenses issued in Macau. Tim, I mean, I, I think the second headline is probably bigger than the first because the Chinese government's cracking down on everything from video games to banks. But LVS, Las Vegas Sands, your final trade last night. How are you navigating today's sell-off? Well, the, the part of the headline or the headline around regulatory pressure is is one that I, I can't, you know, I can't handicap. And, and I, I, I am concerned by that. Um, the headline that says China has basically grounded a city of four and a half million in the southeastern province, you know, ahead of Golden Week because there's a zero tolerance policy is not a surprise. Um, and, and for investors that are investing in casinos, especially those who have flagship locations in Macau and other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia, this is a game of being patient and and travel mobility in the short term hardly uh, something to get excited about in fact has been a headwind to these stocks you look at Vegas Sands um, 38 bucks this this stock is within a whisper of your COVID lows that's right a whisper uh, with a sense that look uh, I, I think it is a matter of time despite the fact that Delta variants or the mu variant or whatever it is are going to be with us for some time uh, remember again Las Vegas Sands has been selling off Vegas assets they've also been investing in in digital and online sports betting and iGaming and things that are giving companies a major multiple here. This is a company that, to me, um, with a short-term outlook, you've got plenty of pressure, and it's more than in the price. Uh, but the guidance okay. they gave after their last quarter numbers is very strong, and I think there's a huge opportunity here. Uh, buy lower. That's the key. All right. We saw a lot of trading activity, by the way, on LVS in the options market as well today. Let's bring in Mike Co to break down the options action. Mike. Yeah, Las Vegas Sands was actually one of the busiest single stocks in the option space today. Wynn actually was in that group as well. We saw it trade almost eight times its average daily options volume, calls out pace puts by about three to one, and the most active options were the January 40-strike calls. We saw well over 28,000 of those trade for about $3.62. That basically means that buyers of those calls are risking a little over 9% of the current stock price to make a bullish bet that this is a time to get long the stock, and we could see a significant rally of 13% or more over the course of yep. the next four months. Mike, thank you very much. And for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. Obviously, every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, we're back right after this with your final trade. Super quick final trades. Kick it off, Tim. Playing defense in Walmart. PK. First solar. Guy. Letter F, you big stud. You crushed it. Thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow night. Mad Money starts right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.